This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Saturday edition of the best of Fight Back from the week that was. It's hard to believe there is still a misconception that COVID-19 is only an older person's virus. Mayor John Tory says when he was at Trinity Bellwoods Park a week ago today, he was hearing from the young adults who were crowding unlawfully that the COVID-19 virus has nothing to do with them, that it's about old people. But this is not true. Experts say if there's a second wave of COVID-19, it will be transmitted by young people, many of whom will be asymptomatic. Filling in for Libby on Monday, I was joined by our Zoomer squad to talk about the Trinity Bellwood situation. Peter Mugridge, senior editor at Zoomer magazine, David Kravitz, VP of Zoomer Media, and Marissa Lennox, chief policy officer at CARP, who says she was shocked. You know, if you look at the rates of infection by age category, they are even across the board. But if you look at the death rates, Yes, there's no question a majority are 60 and over, even more so over the age of 80. Now, couple this, obviously, with rhetoric we've heard over the last few months that seniors are most vulnerable, and that's why you're seeing millennials ignore physical distancing restrictions. But, you know, what this age demographic doesn't appreciate is that these rules aren't just to protect them. They're to protect their parents and their grandparents. And, you know, there's a very real fear that in ignoring physical distancing measures, a larger percentage of younger people will test positive, will have symptoms, will end up in hospital. And before you know it, we have a situation like Italy on our hands. I'm equally shocked as Marissa by the irresponsibility toward the risk of infecting older people. But I'm not at all shocked by younger people thinking it's got nothing to do with them because the communications about this pandemic, when we look back on it, have been completely inconsistent and chaotic. CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, back in March was saying 3.4% of the people who get it are going to die, case fatality rate. And last week they said 0.4%. That's like a hundredfold decrease in the number of fatalities, and mostly congregated in nursing homes and among older people. So it's rational for a younger person to say, I'm not saying it's responsible, I'm saying it's rational to say, hey, you know, I'm not going to die from this thing, because the, the story keeps changing and it keeps getting less and less onerous if you're a younger person and, as opposed to a senior living in a nursing home. Jane, I, I live down by Trinity Bellwoods, and I, I've, I've been out there a couple of times on the weekend. I went out a couple of times on the weekend. And the, the problem is, is you have millions of young people living in cramped condos downtown, and there's absolutely nowhere for them to go on a nice day. There's just, there's no green space at all. And Trinity is is sort of central to this huge condo population. And that's all they have. There's nowhere else to go unless you're just going to be walking around on the roads. It was a nice day. They went there. They feel they're, you know, they're uh, invulnerable because, they're, you know, very few of them are dying from this disease. 
And, you know, it, it, it may have been irresponsible, but it, it's entirely understandable for a 20-year-old to think that way. There's not too much that that phases me with having covered the news for as long as I have. But I felt really personally upset because here my my children are in their 20s and they've been very responsible. They live on their own and I can see them taking it very seriously. I haven't been able to hug my adult children since the middle of March. And I was really ticked off. I thought, why do I? I'm following the rules. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. I'm not going and getting them. They're not in my car. I don't want them riding transit to come visit me. So unless I do a porch drop and talk to them two, three meters away from their front doors, I'm not seeing them. Why are these people being so irresponsible? It's like the story of the, of the guy in, I can't remember which state, but somewhere in the U.S. was mocking physical distancing restrictions, hosted a, a COVID-19 party, and sure enough, ended up getting the coronavirus. So yeah. You know, that's what's going to happen. Marissa Lennox, Chief Policy Officer at CARP, David Kravitz, VP of Zoomer Media, and Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine. Our Monday, Zoomer Squad. And by the way, Marissa's idea of painting physical distancing circles in the park became reality when City of Toronto staff started that process at Trinity Bellwoods on Thursday. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. From the Zoomer Squad to our Tuesday strategy panel and a focus on paid sick leave for Canadians. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announced on Monday talks will begin with the provinces about providing all working Canadians with 10 days of annual paid sick time. This was the New Democrats' price for agreeing to a schedule for parliamentary sittings. Libby Snymer asked our strategists if the federal politicians can't agree on a schedule, how can they get the provinces on board for sick leave, figuring out who will pay and how it will be administered? Here are Charles Byrd, Managing Principal of Ernst Cliff Strategy Group in Toronto, Karen Stintz, former Toronto City Councillor and current CEO of Variety Village, and John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road. It was smart for the NDP and smart for Jagmeet Singh to be able to say to the Prime Minister, look, if you want my support to keep the parliamentary sessions the way they are, in other words, not, not to, uh, not to uh, cave into the Conservatives wanting more parliamentary sessions, then here's my, uh, here's my deal. I want 10 uh, you know, sick days to be applied. So the Prime Minister, I think quite smartly and strategically, said, sure, I'll, I'll do that, not knowing, of course, that he's going to have some, some challenges with the provinces. And I know that Quebec will always, you know, will always um, complain and, or, or, you know, not, not, not fall into, uh, into the federal government's, you know, um, wide-ranging issues uh, on a regular basis, especially on something like this that is, that is a provincial jurisdictional issue. But you've got Ontario and Alberta and you see others that already have some amendments to the Labour Acts that, that allow for, for sick days uh, now, and now, now you're asking them to increase that. And, and again, it, the details, the devil's in the details. Who's going to pay for it? How are they going to be paying for it? Um, but I think it was all a political move to try to get the Prime Minister to win his battle on the parliamentary sessions. But, but I, I think the concerning thing for Canadians is that these requests get tacked on to every Liberal bill, because fundamentally, it is, as the economies start to reopen, it's already difficult to reopen it to reopen and we're not even able to reopen and uh, understandably there is restrictions and we need to comply with them but 
already it's going to cost me more to reopen. I'm going to have less revenue to reopen. I'm taking precautions and, and measures to keep my employees sick. And if they get sick at my workplace because of protocols that haven't been followed, then they're subject to, I'm subject to a workplace safety and assurance board claim. Um, but if they get sick because they go to Trinity Bellwoods, now I have to pay for that as well. If these continue to pile up as a condition for how Parliament's going to function and it's impacting businesses and more and more and more, then it just makes it that much harder for us to reopen and get to where we need to be. Charles? Yeah, but let's let's uh, clarify a couple of things. First off, um, the premiers and the prime minister have been talking about this for several weeks. This is really a response to something that the premiers themselves flagged as a significant issue. In fact, it was BC Premier John Horgan who first brought up the issue, and it was immediately taken up by premiers. Second, it obviously comes with really, really tricky jurisdictional questions, because this clearly falls within the domain of provincial jurisdiction. And I'm not terribly surprised that Quebec is reacting the way it is. But the reality is that COVID has blurred the lines between what is federal and what is provincial. And it's really now about trying to figure out how to address immediate short-term needs, one of which is the fact that frontline workers are having to decide whether to stay home if they're feeling symptoms of COVID or whether, having used up their sick days, they have to go to work when they're sick. And that's unacceptable, and that's stupid. How do you even mandate this? Is it the private sector that has to pay? I mean, I just, you know, don't get the whole thing, because it it has been pointed out that the only way to make this happen is if uh, Ottawa cuts a check. Mm-hmm. To yeah, whom? And that's true. Of, that's true of uh, a great many things. Yes, these that's days. true. And this is the reality of COVID, and this is why we're going to end up with a massive budgetary deficit for 2020, 2021. But the reality <laughs> is that in twenty twenty two and twenty three and twenty four. You know, you know, in, in, in fairness, the debt the debt will obviously be impacted. But you know, it is it's it's a sincere hope that you know once we are past this, hopefully by late 2021, early 2022, that deficit numbers will rebound significantly as revenues increase, as a lot of the spending we've been seeing um, simply ceases to be necessary to combat the, uh, the extent of the crisis that we're facing right now. Charles Bird, Managing Principal of Ernst Cliff Strategy Group in Toronto. Karen Stintz, former Toronto City Councillor and now CEO of Variety Village. And John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, our Tuesday strategy panel. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. On Tuesday, we followed up on a recent segment when Toronto defense lawyer Ari Goldkind charged that many violent criminals are being let go because of COVID-19. The judiciary is independent, so the government cannot weigh in on these decisions. Libby Snymer welcomed Ontario Attorney General Doug Downey, who said he does not have numbers on this, but that everyone in the judicial system is doing their job regardless of the COVID-19 crisis. Not surprisingly, some of Ari Goldkind's fellow defense counsel do not agree with his statement that violent criminals are being let go during the pandemic and also wanted to share their views. Libby was joined by criminal defense counsel and former president of the Criminal Lawyers Association, Frank Adario. What Ari Goldkind was talking about was people in remand jails. And as you know, and as he knows, 
those people are presumed innocent. They're awaiting trial. So those are people who are accused of violence, but they are not violent criminals. They are people charged with crimes to whom the presumption of innocence applies. And so when someone uh, uses a misnomer like that, Mr. Goldkind, it's up to you and now me to correct them and say no. Another thing he said, and I know you want to get to this, is the problem about the telephone. They're using Zoom in some jurisdictions uh, in Ontario. They've been using it in Peel, and uh, they're trying to get it into uh, every uh, jurisdiction. As the Attorney General said, um, we've uh, traveled a lot of miles in the last two months. But they've been using telephones in Alberta for years. And the concern that the judge can't see the guy has not ever been a concern in Alberta. Uh, I think it's kind of primitive to say that unless the judge can see the guy's face, he won't know how dangerous he is. You might recall when we were kids and cartoonists were depicting dangerous guys as unshaven, simian-looking guys. That's not really how we decide dangerousness or risk to the public or whether people make eye contact with the judge. There's really proven patterns uh, of, of dangerousness in the past. And there's police evidence, and we still have access to that, those kind of indicia of dangerousness. So uh, not seeing the guy is potentially a disadvantage, but uh, hasn't been shown to be a disadvantage in the last uh, couple of months. Do you uh, have a concern the- as a citizen that people, accused people, accused people in gangs, gun offenses are, are being released? I'm a citizen. I'm a parent. Uh, and a taxpayer, and I don't have a concern, and I'll tell you why. There's, there's two, there's two reasons. That the gist of what Mr. Goldkind said uh, was that too many people are getting out, and but that assumes that the bail system was working before COVID, and there was lots of information that it wasn't working before COVID. There was more people in remand than there were serving sentences, and a lot of them were Indigenous people. And so what's happened is that when we took a harder look at those people and said, um, as the law requires, is their detention before trial really necessary? The answer came back, no. In every courtroom in Canada since COVID arrived, there's been a prosecutor following a Crown Policy Manual. And as the Attorney General mentioned to you, their duty is to protect the public. And gun offenses are one where they always draw the line and resist release. So get out of jail free is not part of the policy manual. And no prosecutor I know can follow those instructions. And likewise, there are judges in the courtroom and their job is to be fair to the defendant, but also to protect the public and not to release when it's unsafe to do so. So no judge that I know can start from the premise that we'll release because of COVID um, and we'll follow a bumper sticker premise uh, that COVID is a way to get out of jail as opposed to this person is dangerous, but we'll release them regardless. If the wrong people are getting out, his office, the prosecutors can appeal the bail and try to put the dangerous guy back in jail. There are hundreds and hundreds, I'm not exaggerating, of judges and lawyers who are available to do bail reviews to put the guy back in jail. So I think your listeners should relax.
Criminal Defense Counsel and former president of the Criminal Lawyers Association, Frank Adario. This is the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. If you're a longtime listener to Zoomer Radio, then you may have heard me talk about the need to raise awareness and funding for bladder cancer research to find a cure. My mom... Sandy Brown, died of metastasized bladder cancer eight years ago in 2012. And so since 2015, I've been an advocate for Bladder Cancer Canada. May is Bladder Cancer Awareness Month, and while filling in for Libby on Monday, I was joined by Dr. Alex Zlata, Director of Uro-Oncology at Mount Sinai Hospital, Professor in the Department of Surgery Urology at the University of Toronto, and a member of Bladder Cancer Canada's Medical Research Board, along with Ferg Devins, Chair of Bladder Cancer Survivor. Obviously, given the pandemic and the pressure on our hospital systems and clinics, uh, there were a lot of restrictions. Um, So, you know, we've had a very concerned patient community. I I think in particular those that were newly diagnosed and waiting for surgery or who may have had surgery and then were waiting for their follow-up treatments uh, had a higher level of anxiety. And, uh, Jane, that's what we're there to do. We're there to comfort our patient community uh, to support them through these difficult times and at bladdercancercanada.org uh, and through our discussion forums, we're there to support our patient community. Dr. Zlata, why don't you speak to that, having to wait for procedures because of COVID-19? How have people been affected who have bladder cancer? By far and large, and both south of the border and north of the border, Bladder cancer patients have actually been served probably better than many other type of cancers. Uh, and so I know and I appreciate that it has been a very stressful moment for many people, including those calling uh, at Bladder Cancer Canada. But when I, I compare things uh, to other types of specialties, other type of cancers, especially the high-grade bladder cancers, have been by far enlarged um, served in a timely fashion. I I think that in order to reassure the public, we should remember that bladder cancer is a very heterogeneous group of diseases. Half of them are non-muscle invasive, Mm low-grade, which I and many of my colleagues often call the pussycats. Those are indeed tumors inside the bladder, and they only keep the, the name cancer because in about 1%, no more than 1% or 2%, some of these tumors can become a little bit more aggressive. That's the only reason why we keep the word cancer. But the problem of those tumors is not that they will be lethal or claim the life of, of the person who uh, present with them, but b- because they tend to come back again and again. And so for the low-grade superficial, non-muscle-invasive bladder cancer, to postpone, honestly, a cystoscopy or to postpone a treatment, although it's certainly, a, and we fully understand that it's a source of anxiety for patients and their families, but if you're able to clearly explain that it has zero impact and that people who have had in the past low-grade, even if they're delayed by a couple of weeks or even one or two months, honestly, beyond the anxiety, there's nothing detrimental. What is there to know about bladder cancer? This month of May, we're shining a light on bladder cancer. Lights like the CN Tower with yellow and red, and the the distinction there is that one of the most common 
symptoms of bladder cancer is blood in the urine. So we say if you see red in your pee, you see your doctor. Right. And uh, the majority of our campaign efforts are certainly around see red, see your doctor. Absolutely. And Doctor Zlata, yes. Like most cancers, the early diagnosis is key. The earlier you pick up the disease, the best are the chances to, to be cured. And that means that, especially at the time of, of, of COVID pandemic, um, we should not try, you know, to wait and, okay, I've seen a little bit of blood. I have had many, many urinary infections, and uh, we don't understand why that is. So if you have a risk factor and you present with anything which is re- remotely related for the possibility of bladder cancer, just don't delay it. Just because the earlier, the better. Dr. Alex Lada, doctor of urology at Mount Sinai Hospital, professor in the Department of Surgery Urology at the University of Toronto, and a member of Bladder Cancer Canada's Medical Research Board, along with Ferg Devins, chair of Bladder Cancer Canada and a bladder cancer survivor. I also invite you to sponsor my team for this year's virtual Bladder Cancer Awareness Walk. Follow the prompts by going to bladder cancercanada.org and thank you. I'm Jane Brown and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the week. Bob in Etobicoke phoned to say the rules around the pandemic should have been more stringent from the beginning. When they did the shutdown in the beginning, they should have shut all of it down, including grocery stores, liquor stores, and beer stores. So if you needed groceries, you would phone an order in, it would be put together and delivered so that you would not go into the stores and the people in the stores would not be going out to deliver. This is where I think people are getting it because, you know, you've got 400 people. Where did they get that from? They got it from grocery stores, beer stores, liquor stores, and lineups. Betty and Barry phoned to say that the message on reducing the spread of COVID-19 has not been focused enough, starting when protesters were allowed on the lawn of Queen's Park. They allowed that to happen three weeks in a row, and then the bylaw officers left there and went to the parks and find people for congregating. Now, John Tory lost it then. He should have done something, nipped it in the bun, but the first time... That happened at Queen's Park, and this wouldn't be happening now. Siva in Toronto phoned to say it's unfair that airlines are not refunding travelers their money during the pandemic. My brother-in-law is 92 years old, and this was supposed to be his last trip overseas. He had a flight booked for March the 23rd. Well, Air Canada refused to give him back his money. Everybody is saying, oh, Air Canada will suffer. What about the poor people, you know? They're no different to the guys who scam the elderly. They just do it legally. And now, Fight Back's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Betty in Niagara-on-the-Lake, who says she has firsthand knowledge of the dire situation in some Ontario nursing homes. For all 
the government predecessors knew. They've known for years. There's been so many investigations. There's so many advocacy groups that have notified the government about this. Nobody listens. This is great that the military has blown the whistle, um, but right away, immediately, they could uh, legislate uh, annual inspections. That they and I know some of the people don't. They're, they're not the greatest. They're they're a bit of a joke, but at least they were getting in there uh, annually because the residents can't. Some of them can't complain themselves. Uh, increased wages for the PSWs. Work, have them working in one home. Just some of the things they've implemented now with COVID. Keep that. That should be permanent. Um, and increase the hours of care. I, I take care of a woman in a nursing home who, uh, and I've been told by the PSWs, 12 minutes to get them up, dressed, and uh, in the dining room for breakfast. It's impossible to do what they, they're doing. Every home isn't in the kind of condition that these uh, the military had discovered. But there is a lot of neglect and abuse going on in nursing homes. And as I said, it's been going on for decades. That does it for today's Best to Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fight Back Libby and have your say anytime on our Fight Back voicemail at 416-367-9636. That's 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.